as much as Trump's win represents that patriarchy is doing all right, I think Biden being the nominee is even more a reinforcing of that, like, white supremacist patriarchy is fine. Hello, and welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what the hell is going on right now. I'm Adrian Dobb. I'm Laura Good. And it's still 2020. How is it possibly still 2020? I mean, I think this is a really exciting time to announce our spinoff series, The Feminist Pheasant. We should really have like a sound cue in there Boom. of like what a pheasant sounds like, but we we don't for sure know. We have confirmed no, with no. with uh, friends of the podcast that it, they don't cluck, so we know that. They do not cluck. Friend friend of the podcast, Buster Bluth, informed <laughs> us that pheasants do not cluck. Turns out no one on this podcast has actually ever seen a, pe- a pheasant. Um, excuse me, speak for yourself, sir. I have seen, <laughs> I have seen a pheasant. many pheasants in my time growing up in the great Midwest. It is actually, I happen to know, pheasant opening season for hunting season uh, this past weekend. Well, the very fact that you're calling it opening season tells me you're not ready. <laughs> All I know is that when I got married, we had to plan around carnival season on one side and hunting season on the other side, and my side was hunting season. Nice, nice. Who are we talking to today, other than, you know, the ghosts of pheasants past? Well, today we're talking to Imran Siddiqui, who I mostly knew from their writings about pop culture, Mm -hmm. especially Game of Thrones, Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. as I called the interview, G.O.T., because, you know, I used to be hip like 10 years ago. But, um... Turns out they're also a filmmaker, which I did not know, uh, and you knew that. And so when we both said, hey, we should talk to them, turns out we had totally different reasons for doing so. (laughs) It works out well when that happens. I mean, Imran is wonderful and someone who's been a friend for a while. And like Adrian said, they are a writer and a filmmaker. And I am familiar with their work in both of those capacities. And I'm especially familiar with and fond of their essay work, which falls, I was thinking as I was driving in here, very much in line with our like personal slash critical like nonfiction theme for this. We really didn't plan this, but it's working out really well. It is expertly curated by who took our calls. (laughs) By people I know. (laughs) But in Imran's case, I think that that blending works to some really interesting effects. Imran has written pieces about their upbringing in Springfield, Illinois, and how that um, meshes and clashes with the Simpson family's upbringing in Springfield, Illinois. Well, we don't don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Imran wrote a really beautiful like letter to Mickey Kendall thanking her for her service to feminism and uh, like Adrian said Imran was also part of the Game of Thrones canon which I still am abstaining from but understand that people are very interested in I mean I think less so now what happened now that it's over or was there a cancellation I didn't hear about well I mean I think that no one was particularly chuffed about the ending so I think it's one of those that it it, it fell victim maybe to the the lost curse where people thought there was a lot more going on under the hood and they they Uh suspected Uh but it turned out it was exactly what was advertised well that works out really well because like that we are not that interesting when you when you investigate further so it's best to stick with what's on the surface with us i i actually encourage people to assume that there's a meta game being played here just because otherwise i don't see why you tune in yeah that is how we get in the QAnon train adrian we start at acting like we're dropping clues that's how we do it i think this could be really good for our traffic should i just start saying words like pizza and hard drive and what else are some keywords i don't know 
it seems like everything's a keyword. Yeah. They have like they have their own emojis and shit. Well, anybody who's listening to this already knows that we've already dropped all the keywords in like a secret way that they just have to decode it's true. later. So, go, you so should go back. You should yeah. go back and listen to especially our early output. Um, listen to it backwards. The on that one is still a little bit like yeah. Yeah, listen to it backwards. Filter it through some like old Beatles albums, and like I think it'll be pretty clear what the signs that we're dropping are. Fun fact: If you start the turf industrial complex at exactly the first note of uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Uh, it actually <laughs> syncs up perfectly. You know what I recommend is get some bagpipes in there and then you'll really understand what's happening. Mm. Um, mm. Anyway, <laughs> now, that we've, uh, now that we've pandered to our QAnon listeners, um, yeah, we had this lovely talk with Imran. And, and I think really the main through line of the conversation in addition to Imran's nonfiction work was this idea of there being a binary even within um, how we describe masculinity and how that's kind of unhelpful. You know, Imran has this sort of like in development theory that there is more to masculinity than just toxic or healthy and that like there's probably a bigger gray area and fewer binaries if we go under the hood there. I just tied that all together. Boom. We haven't written the log line yet for this episode, but I'm going to guess it's Imran Siddiqui on masculinity. Probably. It is a, ultimately, that's what kind of ties it all together. This idea, which is not, you know, uh, unique to them, but but um, they really articulate beautifully um, that, um, yeah, that, that masculinity has to be more than just a problem, mm-hmm. right? Or can't, mm-hmm. or, can, mm-hmm. or there are resources out there in our culture, actually, mm-hmm. that allow for it to be more than just a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I just want to direct people to Imran's work in general, because I think that they have long been a leader in this sort of area of thought. I have been interested in Imran's work on masculinity for at least 10 years now. So we do encourage you to check them out on social media and their website, imransiddiqui.com. Should we take it to the bridge? Do we have a musical cue this week? Not really. What would be a good one? I mean, we I guess we had a Pink Floyd joke. I was I've been listening to um, friend of the podcast You're Wrong About's series on Princess Diana. Have you listened to this yet? Oh yeah. O M G. So I kind of want to be I like, am, is the fourth goodbye. episode finally out? Because no, no. But they keep tweeting about recording it, and I'm on the edge of my seat because I'm just finishing the third episode about all the affairs. Thing about me, fun fact about me is I could not give less of a shit about royalty uh-huh. if I tried. I do not care. Uh-huh. I watched the entire third season of The Crown just because you're wrong about, like, did a thing on Lady this Diana. This is the Who, power of Sarah it. and Michael, honestly. But, like, because it's kind of the prequel, right? They're, they're sure. try, the Crown is clearly setting up, like, oh, this is why these people are so fucked up and they're going to fuck over poor Diana. And I was there for it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Sarah and Michael are just, like, they really, you know... Deep-dived. They, they, well, I mean, but also they, like, just get you into things that you were, like... Like I wasn't. It wasn't that I didn't care about the royal family. I aggressively did not care. Right. Like I, I very much was proud not to know who the fuck Princess Margaret was. Like I was like I don't I really don't care. like. That's yeah, so interesting. I mean I, I mean, I don't care about sci-fi and fantasy as a genre, so I certainly cannot throw any stones at like sweeping dismissal. I will say I had a grandmother who was very obsessed with the royal family, and I think that mm. in particular. American grandmothers who could see this from a distance probably had a greater kind of fetishization in that gaze. 
sushi well, bot. That's, that's the freaky part, yeah. right? Oh, that's yeah. like it's an authoritarian fantasy, I guess. That's what scares me about oh, it. Oh, for sure. And it's also a fairy tale. It's also a fairy tale that we start marketing towards young women at a very young age. So, you yeah. know, my grandmother that I'm thinking of, for example, was born in 1920, so she's roughly a contemporary with the Queen. So she was old enough to watch the Queen and Princess Margaret like grow up and all that stuff. And yeah. she really wanted me to marry Prince William. She had a whole plan plan for that too. So I remember a lot of like commemorative coffee table books and like life covers as I'm listening to Sarah and Michael's rendition. Wow. Well, you mean you dodged a bullet there. Um... But to tie this all together, you know, I might go ahead and recommend to the royal family of the United Kingdom that they check out Imran Siddiqui's work, because I really think they could use a little bit more investigation into uh, how to do masculinity. Interesting. Just a suggestion. Prince Charles of Wales, ImranSiddiqui.com. Should we take it to the bridge? Let's do it. All right, here we are with Imran. Thank you for joining us yet again. We are all still alive. I celebrate everyone who is alive enough to listen to this, and we hope you'll keep tuning in. It's going to get a little weird in the next couple of weeks with the election, but uh, we will stick around if you will. Enjoy. <laughs> Okay, hi, Imran. Let's continue the conversation we were having about how Adrian's being targeted by the CIA. So, Adrian, what happened in the last 24 hours that has led you to believe that you are an enemy of the state? I have long believed this, and, and now I have definitive proof, and it's that I was banned from Twitter for no reason whatsoever. I know that every MAGA account screams about this all the time, so I do not actually believe this, full disclosure, but definitely a mild persecution complex, mild to medium persecution complex right now. It looks like you got your followers back, though. I did. I was briefly at three followers. I was one of them. You know who you are. Very proud. I was thinking about having t-shirts made for the few of the proud, my three (laughs) remaining followers, but um, instead um, I I got all 3,000 of my babies back, and more importantly, all the people that I follow. Imran, how has your life on Twitter and the internet in general been in 2020? Well, I just noticed that I spelled my own name wrong in Zoom. <laughs> so that kind so it's of going great. Yeah, it sums it up. I, I'm not like a conspiracy theorist type person, but I've worked for a number of years at Media Justice, and we were focused on the reality of state monitoring of Black activists on on social media. And so the fact that we're all like even more than usual reliant on these things to talk, I feel like it's just like another level of stress. I don't love being on Zoom. Like, I mean, I've been working from home for many years and I actually literally right before, like in February, left my job and said, I'm going to take a job where I have to go in to an office (laughs) because I was like, I want to be with people and then everything happened. Yeah. I never got to go in. Can you give us like a snapshot of what it's like in Philly right now? Like, are there, is there a lot of protesting? Is there like, give us, give us the the tone check. You know, Philly, um, there's been sustained activity, you know, of course, ups and downs with it. There was a protest last night um, here. And what's been interesting is that I don't know that I have a great 
pulse on things. I mean, I've been staying inside for the most part. I was going to protest in that, but I haven't been going as much to like downtown. And the other day I was out there like walking around and there was a lot of people. <laughs> I was surprised because people are eating like at restaurants outside, which, you know, they're allowed to do. Some people wear masks, some don't. I imagine it's like that in most places. And the city has tried to use the moment to do certain things that aren't the best. Like there's been recent pressure on people without homes or unhoused people to vacate certain areas. And there's been a huge pushback against that. So in the last month, there's been a lot of protests and encampments trying to protect unhoused people. So I don't understand why the city is doing that. The same thing just happened in Minneapolis. They just swept out a big homeless encampment last night out of a public park. And people are like, why? Like, wh- right now? Why? Like, what What does that achieve? Yeah. I'm formulating a next question because my thoughts are not connecting that well in 2020. I would say like one of my biggest symptoms of 2020 has been that the thoughts just disappear. Does this happen to you? Totally, yes. It's really hard. I mean, I host a podcast, obviously. I teach a class and, you know, like I'll be in the middle of like a student making like a really brilliant comment on Audre Lorde that I like really want to connect it to Melissa Phoebos or something. And like the train just leaves the station and it's gone. Like there's nothing I can do. I mean, you're also a parent. There's life too. And that's the thing. It's like there's work, there's life, then there's like health. And right now it just feels like everything's right up here. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Well, since you brought up family, I would love to talk a little bit about yours. One of my favorite pieces of yours describes your upbringing in Springfield and how Springfield was sort of ejected into popular culture by the Simpsons to like pretty disastrous results for South Asians in America. So I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about what in your upbringing made you such a committed feminist and (laughs) anti-racist. I'm only laughing because, again, now I'm like, where do I start? Anywhere (laughs) you want. Yeah, very um, open-ended. The reality is that not just Springfield, but, of course, all over this country, but growing up, families from Bangladesh, and my parents, they came to Canada in the 80s to to go to grad school. That's where I was born, actually, in, in Winnipeg. And then they moved or immigrated to Springfield. And so... Being immigrants and brown, and um, you know, my dad had a job at the university, so that was good. Um, but you know, all these factors put you in positions where you're going to be challenged. I think, and as as a kid, you don't really realize that. But I'm lucky enough that I've had time to think about it and, and look back on it. But we were often one of the only families that looked like us. There weren't tons of Muslims. I should also say my family's Muslim. Um, So we found a lot of community there, but then our mosque was burned down actually in 1995, uh, following... Before 9-11. Yes, um, following the first World Trade Center bombing um, and uh, then the Oklahoma City bombing. And the, you know, the Oklahoma City attack initially, people were on, on the news saying that it was Muslims, ended up being, of course, Timothy McVeigh, But in the wake of that, there were a series of actual attacks on mosques, um, particularly actually in the Midwest. And one of the things I think I always tell people about Springfield in the Midwest is that we're not Chicago. Even my cousins all around the world will always say, oh, you're from Chicago. I'm like, no, it's not Chicago. Um, because Southern Illinois um, and that whole area is not Chicago. Not that Chicago is any better. Perfect post-racial utopia. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we had a lot of incidents of racism. For instance, before that mosque attack, we 
got newsletters on our doorstep from the local KKK. And my dad was harassed a lot growing up. I, I know more about it now than I did as a kid because he didn't always talk about it. So I think that the context of The Simpsons, which you had raised from that essay, is that it was just another thing to put into that pot where at school people had a reference point for how to talk about you. It's not like I knew as a kid that that was what they were doing. You know, uh, I wanted to watch this and I wasn't allowed to watch it. <laughs> so Springfield is uh, still, I think, a Republican part of the state. All that was part of us growing up there, but we also had a pretty strong community tie to the, to the mosque and to the other Asian Muslims, South Asians who did live there, the, the, the small community that we had. And so I didn't really know so much about why we were being singled out until later on in, in college. And I would say that's when I really, once I had the like analysis from primarily, it was coming to me from women and black and brown women, then I started to be like, oh, okay, some of this sounds familiar to what we were dealing with. That's kind of when the thoughts started to connect and it's been like that since. And kind of at that inflection point, when you were starting to question things that you had not previously questioned, do you remember which feminists were really influential in like making that illumination for you? Like, were there specific black or brown feminists that were real influences on you in that moment? To be honest, at first it was mostly white feminists. Mm. And that's a, a whole another story. Oh, we're going to go there. <laughs> um, like the, I had a great teacher um, in college. I was an English and philosophy major and took a class on chick lit. And <laughs> we were reading like um, Sex in the City and Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret and things like that. And that was maybe the first class where I was like, oh, all these books are written by women. They're all white women, I'm pretty sure, in the, in the class. That led me on a journey. And so in some ways it's like Candace Bush. Oh, I don't know. But like... <laughs> Your <laughs> but, intersectional feminist inspiration. <laughs> but... Uh, but no, like then, it, then in philosophy, I ended up having a, a teacher and it was, it was a woman and she taught the second sex. Once those things were in my head, I couldn't get them out. And it was on my own then that I would eventually start to read some other stuff like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks. But really, and then I often say that it was the internet, like, cause like at the same time I was like on online and later on it would be Twitter. Twitter was so important to me finding black feminists. You know, I just recently wrote a thank you letter to Mickey Kendall because that was many years later. But by then, you know, black feminists on Twitter were my whole education. Early on, I think it was bell hooks, like a lot of people. So that was all, it was a lot of white feminists. And, and it took me many, many years to unpack why that happened first and then why it wasn't the whole picture. That took like another decade. <laughs> so we're going to talk about misrepresentation. Like that's where I'm heading with this. <laughs> but before we get there, I want to dig a little further into this like white feminist syllabus, not just that one class, but like the white feminist syllabus in general. And I think what I want to ask is like, what was helpful to you from that white feminist syllabus? Like in what ways did it help you continue on your journey? And in what ways was it ultimately harmful or hindering to you? Yeah, you know, I think I was raised to be a man. I wasn't just raised by my parents to be a man, but like this whole country. I was raised to be a particular type of man or version of masculinity. And so I grew up buying into a lot of that, or at least I thought I wanted to be some of those things. And so what was useful, most useful to me was the interruption in my head that something like the second sex provided is that like, okay, why? Why do I want to be these things? 
it's not like one book or one moment and it's not even one age, you know, like the question might've happened in, when I was eight, but I didn't have like the language to like think about it more deeply until I was like 14, you know? And, and I will also credit, like I was really obsessed with Malcolm X when I was a kid. The movie, the movie came out when I was in, I think it was in eighth grade or something. I was obsessed. I did like book reports on it and did like a presentation at, at school. And that was an interruption, right? Cause he was Muslim and he was not white and he was, talking about how America was messed up. And so anyways, there's there's a whole continuum of stuff. There's like Virginia Woolf talking about like a room of one's own and me feeling on my own like, oh yeah, I don't have as much space to do the things that these white guys get to do, you know? And so like when she's talking about what would be, what would happen if all women had like 10,000 in a room of their own, you know, that connected to me as well. So I would say that the biggest thing that was happening at that time from a lot of the white feminism that I was reading and then also the teachers, the classmates that I was talking to was just like, you don't have to believe this whole thing that you've been struggling with your whole life, which is, can I be a man? Can I be a man in this country? Am I a man? And slowly, slowly it's chipping away at like, does that matter? And But of course it's then replacing it with another layer of, of like, or not replacing it, but it's reinforcing part of the layer of the, the white part of it. So as much as it's it's in some level, in some way, helping me see that, like, maybe I don't have to be this particular kind of man. It's not necessarily challenging at a, at a deeper level that I don't belong or that I don't need to change myself to fit in mm. to this gender stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the really fascinating things about your work to me seems you, you're obviously opening up questions that at the time you were writing were being askable, were askable in a new way. But at the same time, I think that especially, I, I think the first piece of yours I read was the one about True Detective and GOT. I, I found it very productive just to read because it ultimately said, you know, there is a kind of woke masculinity that ultimately does reproduce all these dangerous tropes. And just because representation on, on television or pop culture is getting different and things don't look um, the way they did when, let's say, The Simpsons first came out, doesn't mean that people being raised to be men currently don't get really fucked up and really weird and really retrograde um, messages about how that kind of growing up is to be done. And I just wanted to ask you about that. Was the focus on pop culture... How, how did that come about? Is that something that you felt um, was uh, made that question askable in a different way? Or was it that that's what we're all looking to say, like, oh, things have progressed so much. Look, you know, our TV is so much more diverse and it can talk about so many more things. And I feel like, you know, um, it, was it that, that that you kind of thought, oh, we've only gotten halfway there and we're already patting ourselves on the back? Well, you know, I think it's a little of all of that. But, you know, side note, I'm a. Uh think of myself as a storyteller. I'm trying to make short films here and there. And, and I think about narrative a lot. And I think that in my own life, narratives were so important because when we're talking about like, you know, being raised to be uh, a man, that's a narrative that I've, I'm either internalizing, challenging or struggling with, and it's being reinforced all around me every day. And I've always like loved movies. And I would like think like, oh, I want to make movies, but I also want to be these people in the movies, you know? And so I've been hyper aware of how narratives can get into your head, but then also seeing how counter narratives were so useful to me. So when Malcolm X tells a different story about the same 
period that I learned about in school, then I start to see like a counter narrative is so powerful. I think that that's what kept drawing me back to writing about or being concerned with media is that we get narratives most powerfully, I think, through media and constantly and consistently. And so that's why I was interested in like kind of using that to be able to challenge these things. And like you said, though, I think also it's easier to get people to see the narrative when it's a literal story. It's funny because I feel like I've had some of the same conversations with each of you individually about experiences that you both remember from your early lives of like where you located the boundaries of what was acceptable in terms of masculinity, you know, like where you learned who was punished for what behavior, you know, sort of for stepping out of line. So Imran, as we were, as we were planning this conversation, one of the things that you brought up that I thought was super, super interesting that I wanted to talk about is something you've been thinking about, about sort of like resisting binaries in terms of defining like toxic masculinity and good masculinity. And I've already butchered everything eloquent that you said about that. So could you please talk a little bit more eloquently than I just did about what you mean by all of that? So just, you know, at the top of the show, we were talking about everything happening in the world. And I, and, and I think that we've got an election coming up, obviously. And like, uh, do we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, what's interesting yeah, I gotta, about, I, I, do you think I should register? <laughs> yeah, you should. Who should I vote for? I'm undecided. <laughs> Sorry. We're just trolling you. Um, Please go ahead. <laughs> no, you're right. Cause it's like the, one of the narratives about the election is that it's as simple as voting, right? It's just, just vote, 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 vote. But like elections are always about what's interesting to me about them is they're about many narratives, competing narratives and like which ones, which ones are rising to the top, right? I, just, I was just watching Mrs. America on uh, FX and what's interesting to me about that show is it really captures how there were all these different storylines that were competing to be the one. And in many ways, all the women in that show don't win. You know, in the end, the, the narrative is this guy, um, and these men, you know, who, who still dominate. And so I think what's interesting about like this upcoming election is, you know, just like when Hillary ran, there was an, a narrative there around that people were interested in women and power, you know, that it's an unfinished conversation. <laughs> um, and then when, when Barack Obama won, people wanted to talk about race. And I, I think right now what's interesting is people aren't as talking as much about the fact that like, okay, we ended up back with two straight you know, cisgender white men after those things. And so this election to me is really an, um, an outgrowth of a conversation, I think, around masculinity that has failed uh, to some extent. And I think that toxic masculinity discourse is part of how it got sidetracked um, because in many ways, Joe Biden is an is a uh, and again this is not a question of like who you should vote for i don't want to talk about that but like uh you know joe biden is very much a man who was able to use the binary of toxic masculinity versus healthy masculinity to rebrand himself as an advocate for women and as like one of those healthy men good men you know because in that binary and even you look at something like the it's on us campaign that he was the face of which is already weird <laughs> why um, but, but, you know, part of what he was able to do, you know, if you think about the Anita Hill debacle, the fact that his hand in, in the, the crime bill um, in 94, the effect he's had on particularly black and brown women in this country is not a 
wholly positive one. But post those events, and I think maybe perhaps intentionally, he was able to reframe himself as an advocate for women because often he would position himself as a man who is better than other men. You know, one of the things that he says even about Trump now is, you know, if this was back in the day, I'd take him behind the high school and beat him up. That's something he said. Um, and he uh, often talks about, he now uses the word toxic to describe Trump. And I think that because we this became a popular discourse, uh, like in, it's like in Gillette commercials and Tucker Carlson hates on it. You know, so like the fact that toxic masculinity is a term now that everybody can either dislike or, or like, it lends itself to submerging the real thing about patriarchy, which is it's a system of domination in which straight cisgender men, white men uh, are going to dominate. And that is still what's happening, you know? And so I just think that there's a danger in keeping that as the central conversation around masculinity. And in many ways, as much as Trump's win represents the that patriarchy is doing all right. I think Biden being the nominee is even more a reinforcing of that, like white supremacist patriarchy is fine. The, the violence is okay so long as it's used for good, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We need we need a misogynist, but an electable one. Yeah. Well, or or one who or one who will punch the bully, not punch you, or something like that. Right, 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 right. Who will use the master's tools towards other people, the bad people. What's that nickname that keeps coming up? Is it like Amtrak Joe or whatever about how he used to take the train home from Washington to Delaware after his first wife passed away to take care of his kids? I can't remember if it's like Amtrak Joe or another like buzzword, but I keep hearing it. And as you were talking, Imran, I was thinking that that buzzword and the reminder to the public that Joe was a committed father seems to try to function to align him with the plight of women in a way, you know, like he's trying to pass for someone who understands the burdens upon single parents who are usually women. And that seems to be very much the kind of slate of hand that you're describing here. Yeah. And I think that the levels there is that like, well, really the theme of the Democratic National Convention was that Joe Biden's a decent man. This idea of decency is code to me also for whiteness. So what's oh talk about that? What's doubly reinforced by the 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 binary of toxic masculinity versus healthy is like who is healthy, who can be healthy in a white supremacist patriarchal country? Because not all men have access to healthy masculinity. One of the things that I've been reading more recently is like I've been fascinated. What's their origin of toxic masculinity? How did this become a buzz phrase in feminist? conversation and it and it actually comes from men not surprisingly you know there was the in the 80s and 90s the mythopoetic men's movements there's a book by iron uh, sorry by robert bly called iron john um and there was like this whole movement in the early 90s of like men going into the woods um in groups to reclaim their what was often described as their deep masculine. Um, Fucking hate just Robert like, Bly. I just have to say that I've always hated him and I still hate him. Please go on. There was a guy in that movement, Shepard Bliss, and he, you know, he, he talks about toxic mess. I was just reading this essay from 1995 in a, a compilation called The Politics of Manhood, but he talks about toxic masculinity versus deep masculine. But what's really interesting is that the reason he gets there is that he's interested in health. And he thinks that like there's a connection between like what men have lost in the wake of feminism. And he even says in that 
essay that men shouldn't be honorary women. We need to, quote unquote, uh, reclaim our um, deep masculine, those are his words. And he says, in order to do that, we should look to the fields of health and recovery. So this idea of like toxic being an addiction as something that can just be cured, um, but also this idea that like health is the solution, that sounds a lot like what you see around the health conversation in general in this country, which is that like thin, white, able-bodied people are the healthiest. It goes into all this, all the different ways that whiteness shows up as health. To me, the what Biden taps into is not only that, you know, he's not just saying he's not toxic like Trump. You know, it actually isn't that far from the ideology he was using in, in the crime bill in 1994 and when he would talk about uh, black communities. And, and the, you know, when we talk about good men versus bad men, it always in this country is coded as uh, racially. So bad men are always going to be, you know, that's why most of the men in prison are black and brown or disproportionately, you know. So I think that those are the risks in that conversation. And I just think that, you know, Biden being framed as this decent white guy, I, I actually am writing this piece right now. I don't know if I'll ever finish it, but uh, comparing him to Marty Bird on Ozark because Marty Bird is, is he wears khakis and like a polo and he's, he's like a decent guy. And if you just met him on the street, he'd be like, hey, uh, you know, my wife is great and uh, she's my partner. And, you know, and secretly he's running, um, he's washing money for uh, a drug business, which is leading to many people dying and all this stuff. He doesn't really care that much about other people, but he wants you to think that he is decent. And because he knows that that gives him a position of uh, dominance um, and particularly as a father figure. And I think Biden very much aligns with this idea of like, not just a decent white man, but decent white father, um, who's gonna keep us safe because of everything that's bad in the world. That is not just coming from Trump, but I think some of that is tapping into white fear of black and brown people as well. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to think about the way in which um, the word decent does actually two different things there, right? So there's a kind of sense of decency we have that's about containment, about like, violence that you would have access to but you decently decide not to avail yourself of it right as a kind of extremeness that you don't lay claim to when you're being decent <clears throat> but then there's also the sense of good enough and i do think um you know i think the piece that you wrote um at buzzfeed i think about uh, dev patel gets sort of into this who gets to be good enough who gets to be a little misogynist who gets to be a little violent who gets to be a little louche um but still is redeemable right and and i mean you brought it to to the question of of um of the criminal justice system but is is true in media too right that that there is a kind of um there's a kind of minimal toxicity that is permitted and even encouraged um for white men that become that is criminalized and and problematized almost immediately for uh, black and brown men um and I, I think that's that's really interesting the way that the decent is ultimately about a reasonable amount of, of patriarchal violence or something like that. Right. I mean, I think uh, Ozark is another example of that. But like, you know, you wouldn't, you don't really see shows where you have uh, a man of color who is, um, you know, where people see him as generally good, but he's just, you know, like Breaking Bad, like he's just falling into the wrong stuff. It's often assumed, well, if you're a black man in America, well, you're, you're not falling into that crowd. You, you're in it. Although I wonder, I mean, if I can push on that a little bit, I, I'm, I mean, I guess one could make the argument that that 
So there was this kind of age of the gritty anti-hero, and that was an incredibly white phenomenon, it seems to me. And, and, and the whiteness of it was really bound up with, you know, how we, how we were supposed to side with Walter White was kind of creepy always to me, I have to say, as good as that show was. Um, but then a show like, I don't know, like Lovecraft Country and whatever, I do think that there are these narratives now coming out that do seem to ex explore beyond that and seem to be wanting to take that apart. Um, but maybe, maybe I've got that wrong. And also that show is not over yet, so it could still take a horrifying <laughs> turn. But um, it, it, um, that's something where I kind of thought like, okay, and I couldn't quite figure out how how to whether I liked it or not. Right? Is the is the man who's interesting because he's kind of violent and kind of awful? Um, is is he the problem, and we should really stop finding him so fucking fascinating? Or is it better if at least it doesn't get racialized in the way it's been racialized? And I really I was like, I don't like my two doors. Is there a third door? And I, I don't know. Um, you see what I'm asking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I mean, in the sense that men who are violent are not the most interesting people in the world at all. They're like the least, um, you know, a black man who's violent because he's being um, subjugated under white supremacy is more interesting than, you know, just a white guy doing that. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm hoping that that show, and I don't know if it will, um, because I didn't love the last couple episodes, but I'm hoping that it re comes back around and centers people who are not like that, you know, and, and not because those folks like the character in Lovecraft Country, that they, they're not important to understand what's happening in America. I just think that we can challenge the, them a little bit more. And also there's people of all genders who are struggling in this country and reacting in various different ways that do not involve killing people. And those are just as interesting and perhaps more so. That's kind of the point of my article. It's like, I don't want, I was like trying to question like, okay, why can't Dev Patel be, be James Bond? But also why would he want to be James Bond? Like that's an absurd goal, you know? Well, when you were just talking about that, it reminded me of what has always been like one of my favorite aspects of your work. And something that I see as a through line through your work is you have a, I see the, the sort of like archetypal Imran essay, right? As something very similar, using a very similar schema to like what Roxane Gay does, right? Where she takes a pop culture, like icon or iconography of the moment and uses that as an entry point into, a, a greater kind of cultural critique and analysis. And I see you kind of use this trope over and over again. And because I know you as someone who is both a writer and a filmmaker, it's something that makes a lot of sense to me. And as a, as a craft technique, it's one that really interests me. But I just wanted to hear, hear you talk a little bit more about how yourselves as a writer and a filmmaker tend to intersect in that kind of critique and like what that form, what the possibilities within that form are to you. Yeah, you know, I, I, I love talking about film because I'm always thinking about it. In the, and then I'm, I love talking about the dismantling of patriarchy because I'm always thinking about it. So that part makes sense. But I think what's interesting is like, sometimes I like asking questions that I am trying to figure out myself. I wrote an essay once that was about what would be a good uh, white film, you know, and at the time I was making or trying to make a, a short film and I was thinking, okay, the camera, the way this is all um, lighted, this is all... This whole system is was built out of a, a country in which white people were dominant, white people were making all the rules, and particularly white men, you know, everything from like the film to editing, cutting, you know. And so I started to think like in that structure, you know, if I'm going to cast a white person, how do I do this 
in a way that doesn't reinforce the whole thing, you know? And I'm a person of uh, color. And so how would a white person approach this? And so sometimes like what's interesting to me about writing about something like that is I'm not really trying to figure it out for the white director, but, but like for myself, like if I'm making art in this world that is so structured by these systems of domination, how do I do it in a way that is useful? Um, so that's part of it. And then the other part of it is, like I said, it's just like, that's how I think, I think sometimes. Like if I, if, if I just sit down and start to think about a problem in the world that looks like a problem to me, I'll start to think about images and stories. I don't know if that answers your question. No, but I don't know if you did either, but you raised something that I think about a lot too, which is whether it is fundamentally possible, you were talking about this with your sort of fantasy of what it would mean to cast like a good white film. Like I often wonder, is it possible to portray a system of oppression on film without reproducing it? You know, so for example, like The Sopranos, creates an, a milieu that's incredibly violent and incredibly overtly racist, overtly misogynist, you know, do they give us any cues that, that allow us to trust that these are intentions and not accidents, right? And I think The Sopranos actually, for my two cents, I think The Sopranos separates those planes a lot better than say like The West Wing does, which is like so utterly convinced of its self-righteousness all the time that it like the blind spots are just huge. Um, but I think about that all the time, you know, like, can we can we create a show that critiques racism without reprodu- reproducing it, that critiques misogyny without reproducing it? I don't know. I don't know. Can you name a show that you think is successful in meeting that challenge? I mean, I think it's it's really hard. Um, well, it's, it's like, what is success? There's a, a critic, I'm blanking on her name, from the 70s, and she wrote an essay on films about war. And she she wrote that film always argues yes. You know, if you show war in a dark theater with surround sound and you're looking up at this huge screen, you know, war is being celebrated. I do think it's it's a challenge to think about that. I think one of the ways that I've tried to to imagine that is that this idea of decentering or disrupting the traditional visions of these things. So if I'm used to seeing, you know, for instance, even war, uh, I have an idea in my head of what war looks like. And if a director or a a filmmaker can get me to look in a different place, um, like whether it's the people who, who are actually suffering or, you know, some other perspective, then maybe that's successful. But I think nothing's perfect. Like, you know, I thought Mrs. America, for instance, at times was very good in like reframing certain things that I thought I, I knew about, um, you know, that period in time. And I thought it did that by particularly well in the episodes that were about like Shirley Chisholm or, you know, some of the characters who haven't had as much attention given to them on screen, but also in the way it was being done. Like for instance, like the um, emphasis on the emotional toll it might take to be Shirley Chisholm. You know, I wish they would have gone much deeper into that. Actually, that, that brings up something kind of interesting. Maybe the problem is the aboutness is it, is it hard to make movies about these things? And see what, you see what I'm saying? Like, there's something, I guess I'm thinking of Pose, a show that, like, is about transphobia, is about racism, is about poverty to some extent, but isn't about them, about them, if that makes sense. Like, but, like, they're part of the world that these characters inhabit, and they deal with these issues in, in different ways. But it's not, the show isn't trying to tell you, look, don't these people have it hard? You people who are nothing like them, right? It's more like, 
you know, this is the story of a wonderful group of people and the and the the things that happen to them and that they make happen in the world. Could the aboutness be the problem? Yeah, I think so. And or who, like you you mentioned there too, also who it's made for, or who who, who the presumed audience. You know, like I, I think like Moonlight is a good example of a film that um, offers a lot of great perspective on masculinity, American masculinity. But it wouldn't. I don't know. Well, I'm sure that they had conversations about masculinity and the making of that, but you know, it's about so many other things, you know, and it's a, it's a story that is so powerful on its own. I think sometimes it's like the camera and the, and the storytelling traditions we have in American film and television are going to default to reinforcing the things we're trying to challenge. And so we have to find ways of not following those traditions. No, like, the, like the issue film, basically, right? Where like, it, what, what does it feel like to be an issue, right? Like you, like this is the, the, the movie about, I guess, you know, Crash will forever be the the sort of punchline to that particular joke, but like, right, the idea that this is the movie that means to to preach to a presumptively white audience about this thing and sort of make important salient points about it without really attending to the people involved in the story, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that, and I, I currently work at Black Star um, Projects. We do a, something called the Black Star Film Festival. Um, and there I've watched so many great, films this year and previous years that are trying different traditions to in the in the style so like one example that comes to mind is a film that just actually is now on netflix is a short film called the love song for latasha and it's about uh it's i guess you could say it's about latasha harlins who was young black woman who was killed in la um ahead of the la riots or la uprisings and like a really important inciting event towards the la riots right yeah, yeah. But the way that the film is made, it's it's interviews with people who knew Latasha, and it's hybrid. It's a documentary, but it's a very like experimental work. Um, it includes interviews with her friends, um, you know, family members, and tries to create a picture of her life. It's not to say that it doesn't address all the things you might think it's about, but in the way that it approaches it, it's affirming that this is a person a black girl who had a life. I think that that's one way that it disrupts the ways we might traditionally see representations of, for instance, the LA riots, you know? So uh, I think that that's one way that film can be a critique, but, but in a way that you might not even think it's trying to do that. So Imran, with full respect to the first partner of California, uh, I would love to hear, since we're kind of talking about inflection points in, you, you know, your own personal consciousness, your career as a writer, I would love to hear a little bit about how your investigation into white feminism traveled into the world of misrepresentation. You know, so as I mentioned, uh, in college, I had a lot of ideas, a lot of thoughts. But, you know, after college, I needed a job. And uh, I didn't have one. <laughs> also, I should say, like, I'm not going to tell my whole life story on this. Why? But, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, dur during college, I also left Islam, which was a, a, a huge moment in my life. And it led partially just basically for me wanting to to get out of Springfield. And um, I love my family, but away from my family a bit. Well, and we might note too that you grew up in Springfield and then also went to college in Illinois too. So at that point you had been there for a long time. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I took a job in California, just partially thinking maybe I'll make movies, but also just to get away 
but I was, I couldn't quite put together this, this idea in my head that like, I was interested in media. I was interested in feminism. Uh, I was interested in writing and, and making media, but you know, how do I do that as a job? I just, it just fell into my lap in some ways, actually through uh, one of our mutual friends, Rupa, Rupa's roommate at the time. Oh, that's right. I forgot that part. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, basically it was like, there's this job at this new film that's in production now, uh, misrepresentation. And also to be clear in an audio way, we are not talking about misrepresentation as a concept. We are talking about Miss M-I-S-S representation, the documentary film that came out in the early 2010s. Uh, that's right. 2011 Sundance was when it came out. And so I joined right then. And, you know, Jennifer Siebel Newsom is the director of that film. And at the time, it was just three of us, really, four of us eventually working on at first marketing the film. It became an organization. It became a series of social media campaigns challenging the representation of, of women in the media, but particularly white women. And I think that you know, my process there is that I came to it very excited and very inspired by the film. And, and it spoke to me in, in some of the ways that those things that I mentioned previously did and that I could see parts of my own story in there, which I would find out later more about why I saw parts of my story in there. But I could see like, this is important. You know, women aren't represented in media and it connects it to the lack of women in politics. But over time, the thing that uh, many Black women and brown women on social media were getting me to think about because of what they were talking about in terms of systems not being designed for inclusion, even in, even when they're talking about inclusion. <laughs> One of the things I started to realize is that internally at the organization, as we grew, we were entirely white. Um, and so, you know, I was the only person of color. I've had many years to think about it. And what I'll say is that it gave me an experience which really showed the limits of white feminism because it was like, here we are, you know, getting invited to the White House to talk about gender in in media. I went to the Republican National Convention um, and spoke on a panel against like the lack of women in, in the Republican Party, whatever. I don't remember. But uh, I remember going is, to meet up with you at their like very beautiful campus in Marin County, too, which yes, made an exactly. impression. Yeah. Yeah. So. Here we are talking about these things, getting attention for them. And yet internally, there are no women of color um, and there are no other people of color. Um, and as it grew and it grew, that just, just started to hit me that, you know, what we're fighting for here isn't actually the inclusion of all women. It's not the inclusion of me even, um, you know. And so, uh, and I should say now I identify as non-binary um, and... At, and part of what I also realized in that room was that I was advocating sometimes for the inclusions of different perspectives on gender, which were not also being heard. And I think it's not unrelated to the fact that we were so focused on not even the inclusion, the dominance of white women, <laughs> you know, being able to get white women into CEO positions and all that stuff, you know, which was very big right then. It was like right around lean in and all that. So you know, I think that that I, I'm grateful in many ways for the experience because had that not happened, I might have been doing something different. Who knows? I hope not, but uh, you never know. Well, and the timelining of what you're laying out is 
illuminating for me to remember as well, because I was reminded in revisiting some of my favorite parts of your work that the solidarity for white women hashtag happened in 2013, I believe. And that just made me remember sort of how white feminism, at least like very public, you know, elevated, like visible feminism, how white that was until... I mean, it still is, but like, I remember there being a, a, a turning point around 2013 and that hashtag. Yeah. I mean, I'm, and again, just because I just watched it, when Mrs. America's kind of depicting these different ways that that moment could have gone uh, in the 70s around the ERA, I was reminded of like similarly the t- 2013 conversation in 2012, actually, and, and like Gamergate and how, you know, this moment could have been a moment where we centered the harassment of Black women and gender nonconforming people online and really blew up a conversation around why the internet was being structured and built in a way to perpetuate the types of harassments that have been common in this country since the beginning. But, but it didn't happen because some of these discussions were being dominated by straight, white, cis women who had other ideas, you know, or had other objectives. And then here we are, you know, I'm not saying it's, I'm not trying to say it's one moment. I just think that's history keeps repeating itself in that sense. And that's by design, by patriarchy, back to the beginning. Yeah, an inevitable and predictable result. A, a couple of episodes ago, we had a, a discussion um, about the, the figure of the turf. And one of our uh, panelists there kind of suggested that trans exclusion is another kind of offering to, you know, white cis feminists to curtail the agenda, make the make certain parts part of the agenda, make certain kinds of, just define what kind of femininity is under threat, uh, what kind of woman is under threat and who doesn't count in that. And our three interlocutors in, in that event kind of suggested that this time was different, that this time people weren't going for it. Um, they actually kind of sounded hopeful. They they almost seemed to think like, yes, this is a repeated since time immemorial, but this time might be different. I, I don't know if you see this playing out in media at all, but it was something that was striking to me because I thought that I, I thought they might say, this is how this is going to go. This is how it's always gone. And they, they seem to think, no, there is a moment when um, there, there's, an, there's an, at least in the United States, not in Great Britain, I guess, but there is an invitation here being extended to white feminists to make themselves the victims. And they're very much not taking it, at least not in, in large numbers. And and that I was like, wow, this is a way to, way to make me feel hopeful in the middle of 2020. Um, and so I guess the question would be, how, do you think that that's happening you know, around filmmaking, around media? I would say it's more like there's been decades of organizing and pushback and education that's happened that is effective. You know, at the end of the day, as much as the system keeps repeating itself, there's also always been movements for change. And I do see like something like, for instance, you know, Me Too, um, Me Too being what it has been and it continues to be, you know, Tarana Burke was doing that work for many years. People before that were doing it for many years and it primes us for a moment when there can be many, many people. And I think defund the police, for instance, is not a slogan that was invented overnight, but it's like 50 60, 70 years. So similarly, I think you're right in that, and those folks are correct. I think that things are different now because we have so many of our ancestors' work to lean on, and it does make a difference. I, but I also think there's always, just like with the toxic masculinity conversation, there's these risks and dangers 
you know, I think there's two sides of the similar coin, the way that language can be so powerful to, you know, in certain moments, like a slogan or a phrase just like taps into something that's been there for a long time and it breaks it open. There's also other things that are like simultaneously coming up that are trying to hold us back. It's interesting to be or good to be aware of both, but I think it is true. Like just looking at JK Rowling things online, it seems like there's at least a lot more people being open about like, yeah, that's not great what you're saying, but there's still people out there supporting her. So, you know. Well, we're definitely going to demand that our listeners go out and buy the power issue of bitch where you have a story in the print magazine. Are there any other places that you want to direct our listeners to look out for your next projects or find you online? Uh, you know, I'm all, I'm just on Twitter at Imran Siddiqui, but I'd say, you know, like really supporting in this moment, 18 million rising, which I did this project um, called Love Letters to Movement Leaders. Um, but they are they're going to have an ongoing series of workshops engaging with really concepts of abolition or different concepts that are raised by the writings that are in that zine called Love Letters to Movement Leaders. So you can check that out at 18 million rising and you can sign up for those workshops um, I don't know. I, don't, I feel like in this moment, I just feel like there's many other things to support. So I don't know. I work at Black Star, so you can support Black Star, um, blackstarfest.org. Okay. So, so follow Imran on Twitter, support Black Star Fest, donate $200 to your local bail fund and, um, keep on fighting. We'll live to fight another day. Right on. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It is produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas and Isabella Tilly. All our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman that none of us have seen recently, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. And we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues there, Cynthia Newberry, Alison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, and Sarah Mersney. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're at Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. We'd appreciate it so much if you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars on iTunes or another platform to help other folks join our discussion.